Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here today. And, and uh, got to hear Danny's message last week. And we're thankful to have him connected to our church and that we get to support him and his family. And we'll continue to pray for his family this week as they head out. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open up with me to John 17. We're going to be in verses 20 to 23. If you're new with us, thank you for, for being here today. We're glad you're here. I hope that you're welcomed well this morning and, and uh, that you're loved on, and we'd love to get to know you. Uh, we're, we're looking at a prayer uh, that Jesus prayed on his last night on earth for the unity of his followers. And this was the night that Jesus was arrested. He prayed to God the Father at the end of his Last Supper uh, that his followers, his, his present followers at that time, and that all of his future followers would be one. And so it's really important from our end to understand what it means to be one. What was Jesus praying for? Why is that important? How can we accomplish that? And so we've kind of been asking four questions about Jesus' prayer. First of all, what is this Christian unity or oneness that Jesus prays for? And then secondly, uh, why should we eagerly pursue Christian unity? And third, what are the results of Christian unity? And fourth, how can I be a part of pursuing Christian unity? And so, uh, so far we've spent a few weeks answering the first question, what is this Christian unity or oneness that Jesus prays for? And, and we've talked about what Christian unity is not. We talked about uh, the fact that Christian unity obviously is not disunity. Uh, Christian unity is not unity around some other cause other than Jesus. Christian unity is not mere institutional unity. And Christian unity is not uniformity. And then we talked about what Christian unity is. And we, we looked at God's word and we saw that Christian unity is a unity of one faith. It's a unity of the Holy Spirit, and it's a unity in Jesus Christ. And we kind of summarized all of this with one definition. It's not a perfect definition, but it'll work for us. That Christian unity happens when all of the diverse members of Jesus' body work together in harmony with one heart and one purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've answered question number one. Now, as we move on to questions two and three, there's a lot of overlap between the two, and so we're actually going to kind of combine them. And today I just want us to ask, why should we be eager to maintain unity in the church among Christians? Uh, Jesus prays several times that this would happen, that we would be one. And so obviously it's his desire for us to be united and to stay united. And throughout the Bible, he tells us that living out this unity doesn't just happen. Uh, we have to work at it. Ephesians 4.3 says that those of us who know Jesus should be eager to maintain the unity of his spirit in the bond of peace. And so today, uh, as we look at Jesus' prayer here, as we continue to look at it, we want to try to identify the reasons that he gives for why we should eagerly maintain unity. And so we're gonna do that as we look at John 17, 20 to 23, and let's ask him to help us. Lord, we thank you for being here with us, and we thank you 
uh, for your faithfulness to us. So we just declare, God, that you are holy. You're set apart. You're in your own category. Uh, you are awesome. You're eternal. You are perfect. Um, your ways are so much higher than our ways. And we just thank you for showing us who you are in the person of Jesus Christ and, and through your word. And, and so as we look at what your prayer was, we ask that you would help us today. Help us to see your heart. Help us to love what your heart loves. Help us to hate what your heart hates. Uh, please take this prayer of unity and help us to flesh it out in our own lives. Teach us how to be peacemakers in, in your body and in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would, you would stop us when we're doing things that work against the unity of your church. Lord, we enter this place with all different circumstances and emotions and things going on in our lives, and we believe that you've sovereignly appointed this text for each of us today, and so we ask that you would feed us. Give us what you know we need. Change us for the glory of your name, for our joy, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just read this section again, John 17. 20 to 23. Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So here in Jesus' prayer, what we're asking again is what are the reasons he gives for why we should pursue and maintain Christian unity. As I've been looking at this passage, I, I see at least three reasons he gives here. And so let's look at those one at a time. First, we should maintain Christian unity because Jesus died to give it to us. Okay. Look at verse 22 again. Jesus prays to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, okay? So Jesus says that God the Father had given Jesus glory for who he was, for what he would accomplish. And then Jesus says he takes that glory and he gives it to his followers, that same glory that the Father gave to him. And so how did Jesus give us this glory which we did not earn? By uniting us to himself on the cross, okay? by becoming our old selves on the cross, by suffering in our place the punishment of God's wrath toward our sin that we deserve, by killing that old self, by killing that sin when he was killed, and then by rising us up in glory when he rose in glory. Because it happened to Jesus, it happened to us if we've trusted in him. And it's important to see here why Jesus says he gave us that glory. He says that they may be one. 
even as we are one, or so that they may be one. It's a big deal, because <laughs> very often we, we talk about what Jesus Christ saved us from when he died on the cross. And that's good to talk about that. He saved us from Satan. He brought us out of the kingdom of darkness. He saved us from the eternal punishment of hell that awaits everyone who rejects Jesus. Jesus saved us from the dominion, the power of sin over our lives and over our souls. Jesus saved us from death by conquering death for us. And because of Jesus, death is now the door we go through just to enter eternal bliss. That's what Jesus has done to death. And so there are many things that Jesus has saved us from by dying for us. And at the same time, there are many things that Jesus saved us to, okay? Jesus saved us to or into eternal life and eternal friendship with God. Jesus saved us into his kingdom. And pertaining here to today's passage, Jesus saved us to unity with his people, you ever think about it that way, that the unity of the church is something Jesus laid down his life to purchase? Not just the church. He didn't die just to save the church, but to, he died for the unity of his church. On the cross, Jesus gave his glory to Christians so they can enjoy everything that he enjoys. And Jesus really enjoys the unity of his people. One of the songs we sung this morning talked about how God makes us his sons and daughters, that we were orphans. And he made us his sons and daughters. And, and that's what he did on the cross to transform orphans into sons and daughters. And, and if we think of Jesus, this is an imperfect analogy, but if we think of Jesus kind of as a fireman who runs into a burning orphanage to save the orphans inside, we know that Jesus did not merely carry the orphans through the flames and lay them down outside on the street corner and then abandon them. Now praise God that Jesus rescued us from the flames of hell, but Jesus' salvation is bigger than that. On the cross, Jesus rescued us from the flames of hell and then he said, you're gonna live with me now. You belong to me, you're not an orphan anymore. You're one of mine. I pulled you out of eternal death and now I brought you into eternal life. You're, you're with me now, forever. Jesus died to unite us with himself and with his family. If we're honest, right, some of us might be thinking, well, I love the Jesus part of the gospel. I love that. I love thinking about my salvation, my friendship with Jesus. I'm so thankful I'm not going to hell. But I'm not super excited about spending eternity with a lot of other people, <laughs> especially Christians. Uh, they're the worst. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Joking. You know, I'm thankful God has a mansion with lots of rooms, but uh, I, I might put in a little request to live in a cabin up in the woods. Um, just see what happens. I know somebody in our church who uh, I'm not going to name, who has a bumper sticker on their car that says, the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. <laughs> And I can tell you that that person who owns that car loves people and has a great sense of humor. But there's a little bit of truth behind that, right? I mean, for all of us, if we're honest. The reason we don't enjoy everything about ourselves or other people or about the church is because we are not perfect, okay? 
Jesus saved us eternally, but we still live here and now in this broken world, broken relationships, broken people, right? With broken people. And in this life, we only get glimpses of the beautiful unity that we'll experience as God's people in eternity. So we're trying as imperfect uh, humans to comprehend eternal perfect realities. And there's just so much, there's only so far our brains can go to do that, right? That the unity of God's people living together in harmony is beautiful to God. He says this throughout scripture and that this is why he wants us to work hard to maintain it uh, here and now. He says, he uses this phrase, I want you to eagerly pursue it or maintain it because I want you to behold what I find is beautiful. I want you to experience on earth what life is like in heaven. The Apostle Paul says that uh, the glimpses that we get of God's work in this world um, are like the reflections that you see if you were to look into an ancient mirror. And several thousand years ago, mirrors were not made of glass. They were made of polished metal. And so you could look into that polished metal and you could see your reflection, but it was a dim reflection. It, it showed you a glimpse of reality, but it was a fuzzy glimpse. And likewise, during our lives on earth, we only see a dim reflection of the perfect unity that God has already given us in Christ. In our present state, we're, we're just not able to fully grasp or imagine how beautiful it is to be united together in Jesus. But even though we can't see the beauty fully, it is clear, according to Jesus' prayer here, that he believed our unity was worth dying for. Him dying for. Not us dying for, him dying for. God died to make us his, and he also died to make us one. And it's vital to remember that when, then when we're born on this planet, we don't have either one of those privileges. Okay? Until God makes us born again through faith in Jesus, we aren't one of his friends. We can become his friend. If, if we accept his offer of friendship and turn away from the world as our savior and turn to him as our savior. But until we trust in him for salvation, we're not his friend and we're not united to his family, his church. We are, it's kind of like in ancient times how they had these huge walls on their cities. And until we trust in Jesus, we are unprotected. We're outside the city gates. We're apart from the city of God. We're not where Jesus is, okay? We cannot have dual citizenship either. We can't say, well, I want this out here, but I also want that in there. That's not how it works. You're either in the gate, in the city, or you're out of the city. You're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. We've got to turn away from the world and turn to Jesus. And this is, he lays his own life down as the bridge to bring us in. <laughs> he is the bridge that he lays down so that we can enter the city and he welcomes us to be with his family forever. It's only possible because of what he did for us. And he wants you to know here and in this passage, he says it several times, that he loves you. That God loves you. And that he wants you in his family. And don't take that for granted. None of us should, right? And don't forget it. 
because it's easy to forget that this isn't God's disposition toward us because we want it to be. It's God's disposition because God is love. Because this is who he has said he is in scripture. And if he has saved us into, by this incredible gospel, he says, I want you to seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. And part of that is being eager to maintain the unity of my family here at Cedar Home and, and beyond. And so the first reason we should maintain Christian unity is because Jesus died to give it to us. He gave us his glory for it. And second, we should maintain Christian unity because God uses it to make us more like him. Okay? God uses our pursuit of Christian unity to make us more like him. So what? Why does that matter? Who, who cares? Why does becoming like God matter? Because as you read the Bible, you'll find this, that that's the whole reason God saved you, to make you like him. Because he's perfect and he loves you. First Peter 2.24 says about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that or so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God is righteous. He died so that we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What this means is that God is a redeeming God. It means he buys back what was lost and damaged and he makes it beautiful again. God has redeemed his followers by dying on the cross to buy back his people from sin and destruction so that he might restore them and make them beautiful again. Remember that when God created humanity, we read about this in the first chapter of Genesis, the one thing that made humans different from trees and oceans and animals and angels is that God created humans alone in his image. Genesis 1.27 says, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What this means is that humans are not gods, okay? We will never be gods. But when God made us, he made us like him. Okay? God made us to be his image bearers in this world. And this is a key concept in this sermon today. God made us in his image so that we would image or reflect his image, his glory, back to him and to the whole world. Okay? So... He gave humans the unique right to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate the earth, to create cultures, to populate the earth, to flourish, to care for the earth, to be like God in such a special way that we reveal his glory to each other and to him simply because we are humans. Every one of us in here has been made in the image of God. And every single person out there has been made in the image of God. But in the third chapter of Genesis, we read that humans rebelled against this God who made us in his image. And humans listened to the lies of Satan, Satan and they believed that they could become gods if only they would disobey God and eat the fruit that he said don't eat, not to eat. He told us not to eat. And, and even though God told those people ahead of time, 
that if they ate that fruit, they would surely die. They would bring destruction to humanity. Adam and Eve instead chose to listen to Satan instead of God, and they ate what was forbidden. And when they did that, sin and death and destruction entered humanity, just like God said it would. And what it did is it, it warped our image of God. It ruined every aspect of our being, right, of our minds, what we think about, how we think, the desires of our hearts, what we're most passionate about, our physical bodies, it's broken, our souls, they've all been handed over to death and destruction because we've told God we'd rather have this than you. But God in his, in his grace and his love did not stop continuing, uh, did not stop uh, continuing to make people in his image. The difference now, though, is that the image of God in us, uh, the way that we reflect his glory is very imperfect. It is warped. Our minds are sinful. We see this in the brokenness of our relationships. We see this in the fact that our bodies now get sick and, and die. We see this in the fact that souls are condemned to hell. But despite these tragic realities, every human being is still made in God's image and has inherent value and worth. And this means that every human life from the womb to the tomb is sacred. And God wants to redeem every life for his glory and for our joy and freedom as we experience him. And the only way, again, to be rescued from this death and destruction that we brought upon ourselves is by believing that Jesus did what we could not do to get us out of our predicament, by living a perfect life where we lived sinful lives, by dying for our sin when we couldn't get rid of it, and by rising in glory and raising us up with him from death when we were still stuck in the kingdom of darkness. When we believe that message in our hearts and when we confess it with our lips, it is evidence that God has changed us and he's united us to his redeemed people. Galatians 4, 4 to 6 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Love it. It says, everybody who belongs to Jesus through faith is entirely justified in God's sight, redeemed eternally in God's sight because of Jesus. Now, we haven't arrived at heaven yet. And so that means we still live in brokenness. God is Mercifully, though, because he's a redeeming God, is working in our lives. He's redeeming our lives right now. He's restoring the image of him in us. And that process will end when we meet him face to face, when he comes back, okay? The word the Bible uses, glorification. This glorification will happen when he restores the image in us that we were created to have that reflects his glory the way he wants us to reflect it. But what it means is this. It means right now for you and me, this is incredible, that whatever you've done in your past, however broken you are right now, um, 
if you surrender to Jesus, if you live in Jesus, abide in him, then he will change your life. <laughs> Get that? He makes you born again, and then he's continuing to transform you so that you, as a unique person, bring glory to him with the unique talents and gifts and passions and desires that he uniquely created you with. It's pretty incredible. What it means is this, that our lives here on earth matter, okay? Now, we know that it's, they are a dot on the timeline of eternity. But in God's wisdom, he gave us great value and purpose in this dot of time that we have. That in fact, what is done in this dot of time determines our experience of eternity. Our lives on earth counts. We're not just, we're not just sitting around waiting for heaven now. Jesus is, is shaping us into his likeness, and he's, make, he's using us to ex, extend the kingdom of God into the darkness so that other people can experience the same redemption in Jesus Christ. And one of the main tools that God uses to redeem us, to transform us into his likeness, is his word. This is why Jesus said it's just a few verses ago, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So how are we sanctified? By the word, by his Bible. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds have to constantly be renewed by the truth of God, the word of God. And so what that means is it's hard to read the word. We know that. This is why it's a community project. We do this together. We read the word individually or listen to it if we can't read it. We read it in our community groups. We read it with some of our friends, with our spouses, with our families at the dinner table. This is a community project, and this is how God shapes us, one of the ways. And so as we read the word, it is possible to read the word and not be changed. Our change is totally up to the Holy Spirit working through his word. This is why we say, Lord, change me, please, as I read your word. Help me to understand little things about this. Like when I read this little passage, what does it say about the kind of God that you are? And what does it say about humans? And what does it say about what you've done for me and what my path would be, look like, my trajectory would look like if you hadn't done it for me. We want to meditate on these truths. And God, what are you asking me to do here? What are you asking me to do by the power of your spirit? Jesus also uses his spirit, which we talked about, obviously. The spirit convicts us of sin. The, the spirit gives us power to, to do the things that he commanded us to do in scripture. And when we fail, the Spirit reassures us that our salvation is not in our works, but in our faith in Jesus. And then also, specific, specific to this passage, Jesus uses his church, his people, to sanctify one another. Okay? He uses our pursuit of unity to make us more like him. Because, you guys, we all know this. Maintaining unity is not an easy thing. It's a hard thing. It requires us to take up our cross and to die to ourselves. It requires us to depend on God. 
not on ourselves, and to abide in him, and to be humble like Jesus. And when that happens, when, when Jesus humbles us like that, then he transforms us. He's transforming us into image bearers who increasingly look like him, the way we were intended to look. And this is why he prays in John 17, 21, that they may all be one just as, so or in the same way as, you, Father, are in me and I in you. So he wants us to look like God. He wants our unity to reflect the perfect and beautiful unity that our three-in-one God has in himself. This is the image God created us to reflect, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus prays in verse 22 that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And then he prays in verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. So Jesus says that the perfect unity that God has in himself is the image we were created to pursue and maintain. And obviously we know we're not perfectly one right now in this world. We will never be perfectly one in this life. Jesus has made us spiritually, eternally perfectly one. But in this world, our experience of that is imperfect. But we know this. Because of this passage, Jesus says, he died for us, he rose again to save us to unity so that we would work hard to maintain it, right? It means we don't have this attitude of defeatism, which means, well, there's nothing I can do. People are people. I'm just this way. I can't change. That person won't change, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So there's no point in even pursuing it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who maintain the unity of his church to the best of your ability by the power of the Spirit. Because every time that we do that, Every time we seek to serve others rather than to be served by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every time we seek to be peacemakers. Every time we show grace and forgiveness to others, to one another, we bring glory to God. We shine forth his image. We, we shine forth his glory in our lives and to one another and back to him. And show, this, show the world this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so the second reason we should maintain Christian unity is because God uses our pursuit of that to make us more like him. And the third uh, reason we should maintain Christian unity that Jesus gives us here in John 17 is, is so that the watching world, non-believers, may believe that Jesus is God. Okay. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays that his followers May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay? And Jesus says a similar thing in verse 23. He prays, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay? So in these verses, the world and in the Gospel of John almost always refers to uh, the creation in active rebellion against God. Okay? So here he's talking specifically about non-Christians. So this is pretty remarkable what he's saying here. That the degree of the church's unity 
directly impacts the ability of non-Christians to believe that Jesus is God. This means, I mean, this gets personal. The things that you and I do to either unite the church or to create disunity in the church directly impacts the eternities of non-believers. That's what it says. So when we as Christians work to maintain the unity and the harmony of our church, God uses that unity to testify the truth of the gospel to non-believers. Okay? And it says that some non-believers will be so impacted by the supernatural unity and love of Jesus displayed in his followers that they will believe. They will believe Jesus is God, that he really is God, that God the Father actually sent his son into the world to die for sin because Jesus loves his people and God loves people. They will believe. I mean, this is incredible. And notice this. I love this. Jesus' emphasis at the end of verse 23 on the love of God made manifest or shown, displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. God wants Christians to know that he loves them. He loved us. He died for us when we did not love him. And at the same time, God wants non-Christians to know through the love and unity of Christians that God loves non-Christians too. And he died so that many of them might trust in him as well. So a really important question for us is this. How in the world can the mind-blowing love of Jesus Christ impact non-Christians if Christians don't even love one another? Why would non-Christians want to be united to a church that doesn't love unity? (laughs) Doesn't make sense. Why? We have enough drama in our lives. I don't need more drama. That's what they're thinking. Well, obviously, God's people have always been an insufficient witness of God's love and unity to the world. It will always be that way until he comes back. But in spite of our imperfections and flaws, God gives grace. And he works in and through Christians to maintain unity one situation at a time. One conversation at a time. And when that happens, again, it shows his image to the world. It shows his glory to the world. It gives us glimpses of his kingdom in a way that Christians and non-Christians alike can see Jesus and confess, wow, he really is God. Those displays of love for Jesus, forgiveness because of Jesus, redemption in Jesus, those are not natural to us. They must only happen because God is truly at work in his people. And so what this means, let's get practical for a second. Christians, we must constantly be aware of the messages we are communicating to the world about our church and about other Christians. If you have a problem with someone from church or with another brother and sister in Christ, do not go talk about it with non-Christians at your workplace or your school, okay? Don't go rip on your other Christians to your non-Christian relatives. You think that's going to help them think highly of you and this God that you love? 
And honestly, you need to be very discerning what Christians you talk to about your conflicts because they could very easily gossip about it to others, which could hurt the faith of believers and prevent unbelievers from coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus gives us directions. He says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If you're unhappy with your brother or sister in Christ or your church, don't go post it on Facebook. It doesn't matter if you name the person or not. Don't badmouth your Christian brothers and sisters. I think this is what Jesus would say. Write it in your diary, not on Facebook. Okay? Because you're hurting the reputation of Jesus and his bride when you do that. If you get into an argument with another Christian online, be mature enough to take it offline. Let's say, let's just talk person to person. This isn't worth the reputation of Jesus. (laughs) It's not worth it. And this is the thing. I'm not saying we Christians pretend like we have it all together. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to use wisdom about who we talk to about our conflict with other Christians. Okay? Sometimes we do need wisdom. But sometimes our flesh just wants to gossip, right? And so I would guard against the gossip, and I would, if you seek wisdom, seek wisdom from a mature, godly person who you know is going to give you good counsel so that you can take the next step towards reconciliation in the church. Um, We live in a world of Twitter and Facebook and blogs and podcasts and Instagram. This is the reality. We have the ability to impact more people than ever possible, positively or negatively in the name of Jesus. And uh, there's a proverb that says, when words are many, sin is not absent. And so let's all be careful because the souls of non-Christians and the glory of God is at stake by our unity. Now, just as a poor witness can leave a negative impact on non-Christians, so also, obviously, uh, Christian unity can have a positive impact on the non-Christians around us. For several years, our church has uh, had the privilege of hosting an awesome ministry called MOPS, which stands for Mothers of Preschoolers. And Annie Bowden, I don't know if she's here, but she's led this ministry for several years. She does an incredible job at it. And one of the things that has made this group here at Cedar Home unique is that Annie oversees women leaders who come from a variety of different Christian churches in the area. And there are definitely theological differences among the leaders, but what they all agree on is the gospel of Jesus. And I know that this year in particular, there have been a lot of young moms coming to the group who don't go to church and who do not follow Jesus. Jesus. So do you think that those non-believers are impacted at all by a room full of Christian leaders from different churches who are all working together to love them and to point them to Jesus? I think so. I have no doubt that God is working in that ministry in visible and invisible ways. And that's the kind of unity that shows the world that Jesus really is God. This isn't a fairy tale. His love is real, and he deserves our worship. Um, I have a long illustration that I'm gonna cut out because we have communion, but there's, I read two other stories this week, one about a city whose 
Christians came together to pray and they began to see massive transformations happening in the city. And the mayor of the city said, we can only credit Jesus Christ for this. <laughs> like, it became that big. It reminds you of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And, and it's amazing. God works among the unity of his people. And onlookers see that and believe that Jesus is God. Um, the way that we interact with other Christians and, and talk about other Christians really affects us and it really affects non-believers. So Jesus prays we would work hard to maintain unity because he has people to save. And he wants the watching world to believe that Jesus is God. So according to his prayer here, three reasons that Christians should eagerly maintain Christian unity are one, because Jesus died to give us unity. And two, because God uses our pursuit of unity to make us more like him. And third, so that the watching world may believe that Jesus is God. God willing, we'll finish this little series on unity next Sunday, and we're gonna get really practical, okay? We're gonna ask some questions like, how can I do my part to maintain Christian unity? Is it ever okay for Christians to divide? And how can I disagree with other Christians without being disagreeable? Okay, as the communion service come forward, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your word today, God. And it is a convicting message for us because we, we know we're not perfect and we know that we've all sinned in these ways. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be redeeming us right now, that you'd be transforming us into your likeness, that we would take the steps necessary in our part to read your word, to see what your image looks like and what you want it to look like in our lives, um, that we would pray for this transformation in our lives, that you would help us, God, to do what is not easy in our flesh, to pursue unity in your church, and that this would be done for the glory of your name, God, and for the salvation of souls. Um, thank you, God, that you tell us here that you love us, that you love us, that you so loved the world that you died for it, God. And... Thank you, God, you've not made us mere recipients of this love, but participators in it, that now we can extend this love to others, call others into your kingdom by your gospel, and seek to maintain the values of your kingdom, God, and the values of, of you. And we know that you love a united church. So please, God, help us to do our part, to value that, to be peacemakers and to uh, keep our mouths shut when we need to and to point our brothers and sisters in Christ the right direction when they're in conflicts and to seek your glory in all things, God. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.